I am tired. <laughs> I am pretty exhausted, and my stomach is still kind of recovering, to be quite honest. But that does not deter me to think, I love Six Flags Magic Mountain. I know some of you in this room don't. Some of you can't because you get emotion sickness, and I feel bad because I love Six Flags. And the reason why is because it's, it's, because it's so far away. It's about like 90 plus miles away. It's about an hour and a half a drive away from here. It's practically in another country from us, all right? It's another state, it's another country. You get your passport in order to go there. But it is special to me because I don't go very often. The last time I went was actually when I was a junior in high school for a physics class. It was a great excuse to go to some roller coasters. But people sometimes spend hundreds or thousands of dollars to come see something that we live close to, something that we enjoy or sometimes we hate. People plan out weeks of vacation just to come see the ocean, to see the beach. Now, some of you like the beach. Some of you love it. Some of you go surfing every weekend. Some of you go surfing every day. Some of you despise it like Anakin Skywalker, where he's like, I hate sand. It gets everywhere and it's messy. But people pay millions of dollars to live by something that we, just, we take for granted because we're so familiar. And for the surfers in the room, like you hear someone goes to one beach, or why do you go there? The surfer's better over here. Actually, don't come over here. Go over there anyway. I don't want you at my beach. I want my own waves. And some of you are just, I, I don't like beach nights. It's too close to the ocean. I like to be away from the ocean. I actually want to move far away. It's because, again, we're so familiar with it that we don't see it as special. And it is possible to be too familiar with the stories of Jesus, to see him as a, as a casual man or a, as a casual God, and we have a very casual view of him. It is possible, and that should scare us a little bit. And in Mark, specifically in chapter 6, he's going to show us how not to have a casual view of Jesus. Because we need to guard ourselves against our own pride of having a casual view of Jesus by exalting him as our Savior and exalting him as our God. So please turn with, you, turn with me to Mark chapter 6. We're going to read verses 1 through 13 together. Again, this is, right a, this is after, it's not right after, it's a little after Jesus casting out the demon. He's been doing miracles all over Galilee. He's been teaching. He's been sharing, preaching parables. And here, right now, he's going to go back home. Kind of like LeBron James when he went back home to Ohio from Miami. But even greater, because he's much greater than LeBron James. Sorry, LeBron. Not sorry. But follow along in verse 1 of Mark chapter 6 as we see what happens when Jesus comes home. So he, Jesus, went away from there, Galilee, and came to his, to his hometown. And his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? This sounds like a good start. Like, wow, this man's preaching is so good. But it, it turns bad real quick in verse number three. Is this not the carpenter? The, the son of Mary and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And aren't the, are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to, the, said to them, A prophet is without honor, except in his own hometown and among his relatives, in his own household, 
and he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics, so bring an extra pair of clothes. And he said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that the people should repent, and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. What Mark is trying to do is to help us see that we are supposed to view how we're supposed to view Jesus and how we're supposed to rely on him. Verse 1, he comes back home because for several chapters he's been doing miracles and preaching all over the region, especially Galilee, uh, to people and doing these amazing things. So imagine like Emmeline who just graduated and is now at Berkeley or um, Lewis is now at Masters. We, imagine we don't see them or hear from them for a very long time for four or five, ten years, and all of a sudden they come back and they have PhDs and they do, do these all amazing things, but we're like, well, I know Emmeline, I was a close friend of hers, or I know Lewis, I was in the same small group, but how can he be so smart and wise all of a sudden? Don't laugh, he's smart. <laughs> but apparently they couldn't accept the truth, that the power and truth that Jesus was preaching was the person that they grew up, that came from the person that he uh, that grew up with. Maybe they were raised, they played with Jesus, or maybe babysat for him. And his wonders that they heard about were just too much for them to comprehend. Maybe for some of you in this room, you think the Bible's too good to be true. The story of this book is too neat from the beginning to the end. It's too neat. This world is chaotic. It's evil. It's wrong. I, I, it can't, it's too good to be true. And they couldn't accept the fact in verse 3 that the man they knew per, uh, from personally Again, think of maybe if you have a sibling, a little sibling, going off and doing these amazing feats that you can never accomplish, and then coming home with this amazing reputation. The hometown couldn't accept the reality that Jesus, their ordinary neighbor to them, was the powerful Messiah they've been waiting for. They've been waiting for the Savior for a long time, and they're thinking it's going to be one thing, but in reality, it's Jesus. So Trinus, what we need to do, we need to reject the temptation of seeing the gospel as ordinary. That's your first point. Reject the temptation of seeing the gospel as ordinary. For some of you who do like school and some of you who don't like school, but the first day of school is always different, right? For you freshmen, you're now from going from middle school to high school. You, you made it to the big leagues. You're like, okay, I'm gonna, all that reputation in middle school, it's gone. No one knows who I am. I can go to a different school, a different location. For you seniors who's, who have already graduated in your minds, you're thinking, all right, no, this senior year, it's gonna be different, or at least the first day of school seems special in a way, different from the, different from the routine. But now that you're a month in, or more, things are now mundane and ordinary. Classes aren't really special. It's another book to read, another quiz to take. Things aren't special because now you see them as ordinary. And that's the temptation right there. We're, we're, we, don't, we don't want to be too familiar with these stories of the Bible so that we just have a very casual view about it. Look at how they were tempted. They were tempted because they knew him 
probably from birth. They knew his family. They knew his brothers by name. They knew he was the son of Mary. They knew he was the carpenter. They knew that, they knew his sisters. And they're so familiar that they couldn't get past the fact that he was the, the Messiah. But maybe we are too familiar because many of you in this room grew up in Awana. You did kids ministry. You heard the gospel preached over and over. You were in the edge. You had Susan Grover and your teachers preach the gospel to you over and over in fifth and sixth grade. And now you had the junior high director, now Pastor John, now you have to call him that, Pastor John. You had him preach to you, and their small group leaders preach to you over and over. Now you're having Pastor Rod, week in and week out, sitting in this room, for many of you, week in and week out, just having a very casual attitude about the whole thing. This should be blowing our minds. And we're too familiar because sometimes we show up to small group week after week after week with no change or willingness to change. But how do we fight the temptation is that we need to see the gospel as extraordinary. Philippians 2, 5 through 8. Philippians 2, 5 through 8. Paul's telling the, the church in Philippi to have a mind, this a mind among yourselves, which is in Christ Jesus, who, though he was born, so he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped. Paul is trying to emphasize to these Christians in ancient Greece, and he's trying to em- now it's emphasizing to us that this should blow our minds. These are beyond, oh, facts. This is something that should be to be grasped, that we can't even grasp it because it's so big. It's so amazing to think about that God emptied himself. It's, it's amazing that God took a form of a servant. It's amazing that he was born in the likeness of men. The God of the universe who created man came from man. And being found in human form, God humbled himself. And the God of the universe was obedient to the point of death on the cross for you and for me. We shouldn't look at that casually. The God of the universe for you and me should blow our minds. But some of us, we, we hear that and it's like how we treat the beach. No matter how big of a surfer you are or how much you hate the beach. We're still sometimes too familiar because we don't come with the right attitude. We might be shrugging off our Bible reading in general. We might approach it as another chore to do. To say, all right, I'm going to read this to get as quickly as done as possible. And you hit the, you know, the second half of Exodus and the, the building of the tabernacle. And you hit Leviticus and you get the Old Testament law. And you go to the prophets. You're like, what is Isaiah really trying to say? It's because we try to read through it without trying to actually grasp it. Pastor Rod and I were t- talking. We actually found out we both, when we read The Great Gatsby in English class in high school, we didn't care for it. We didn't get it. We, didn't, we thought it was a kind of a dumb book because we didn't take the time to slow down and understand what Fitzgerald was trying to say. That's what we try to do maybe when, reading, when we, if you're even reading your Bible. That we try to just get through it, just to mark it, to check it off the list. But we need to slow down. We need to meditate on it. We need to pray through it. We should journal through it. We should wrestle with the tough, the tough questions, the tough answers. We need to write down how we need to actually apply it. Just because you know it and you're not doing it, it's pointless. That's what the Pharisees did. They knew the Bible in and out, but they did nothing. They, they searched the scriptures looking for eternal life, but they missed the fact that the scriptures pointed to Jesus instead. Sometimes we read the Bible like we're eating McDonald's. Or like last night in my car, we ate Jack in the Box. Get some dollar menu stuff, Oreo shake, usually for me, some french fries, and we scarf it down. We got to get home. We eat quickly. We, we eat in the car. We don't think twice because it's, you know, it's, it's delicious. It's nice. But we don't treat it the same. As 
you know, I would with a porter house steak from the montage in Laguna Beach. Oh, that beautiful steak. My wife and I were blessed to be able to have that. We got a gift card from my parents and we were able to go on a date there and we ordered this $60 steak and it was worth every bite. You're about to cut it and then as the knife is about to touch the meat, the meat splits because it's so tender. And it's like smothered in butter and onion and I don't know what it was. But we, we, I tried to cut the smallest pieces I could so that I could enjoy this porterhouse steak as long as I possibly could. Every bite I chewed and I can feel the savory flavor just blowing my mind of how delicious the steak was. And the thing is, you don't eat that in the car. You dress up. You sit down. You wait. You, you eat some bread. You, just, you wait. And you just glo- bask in the glory of this porterhouse steak. And you spend an enormous amount of money just to have it. But it's worth it. Just like it is to take your time to savor the word of God. To look at it as something you actually need. To see it as the word of God. That you want to savor every moment. And when that steak was gone, I cried. I cried inside. I was like, no, I was ready to gnaw at the bone, but I don't want to embarrass my wife. I want to take that bone home with me and hope that maybe I can relive some of the glory. As we enter time and reading the word every day, it should bum us out that we have to stop because we're in love with it so much. We see it as extraordinary rather than ordinary. That's what the problem that the townspeople had, that they, they just saw this hometown guy that came back and all of a sudden he's preaching with gusto and power. He's able to understand the scriptures better than they could and now he's coming back with the reputation of doing miracles. But what was, what was his reaction again? Look at verse 4. Jesus replied to them, a prophet is, is without honor except in his own hometown and among his relatives in his own household. What he's trying to get at is, Again, it's like, you're too, too familiar with me. You see me as this common person. And all the prophets in the Old Testament, they, they probably had the same problem. They couldn't do the same works in their own hometown as, as if you heard your sibling, if Cameron heard that his little sister Hannah is better at football than him, he can't comprehend it. He's like, no, I live with her. I know her. But all of a sudden she comes back and she's winning the Heisman. She's Super Bowl MVP all of a sudden. He can't comprehend it. This is not true or factual. And so Jesus responded to their hard heart that the pride consumed their wonder, as our pride can consume our wonder of the word. We might know the ins and outs of a certain passage, or if you grew up with this church this whole time, you might know the answers, and you sit in a small group and just check out and say, I don't need to, I don't need to share, because I know it. I know what the small group's going to say. I, I know the script, because we're unwilling to change. In verse 5, he didn't, he didn't do, he couldn't do any mighty works there because they didn't have faith. If you look at the miracles that Jesus does to people, look at this. Think about this. Every time he does it, someone had faith that he could do it. We're going to look at in Mark 5, that how a woman believed so much that just touching his garment would heal her. See, her faith is what healed her, not just her touching his garment. It's her faith. And maybe we don't have the faith because we're still fighting our own personal sin that we just can't get over these some of these doubts that we're fighting and we don't really believe that he has the power to do it maybe we're too hard-hearted and jesus was in awe of that he was in awe of their hard hearts and he moved on he went to the other villages in verse end of verse six he went about to the other among the villages teaching other villages that were his hometown as 
as I am in awe of people who can't accept that the world is actually a sphere. We see people like, oh, these flat earthers, and we go out like, how can you just reject this truth? Or even to me as a story, as, as people are like, oh, the moon landing is fake. I'm like, wait, really? Like, are you, are you kidding me? Can you actually look at the account? It actually happened. Why are you rejecting the truth? But how is, how of God is, how in awe is God of our unwillingness to change? Or even our small group leaders, if we're unwilling to change. Even if you don't talk, we see, we see your body language, we see your actions, and we get, we're just in awe of how you can sit here week in and week out and not change. The people in the hometown, they rejected their reality and substituted their own. They couldn't handle the truth. Point number two, True North, accept the truth that only Christ can save you. Save us. Accept the truth that only Christ can save us. See, Woody, the cowboy, was really frustrated at Buzz Lightyear and the Toy Story number one out of 5,000 to come. He was frustrated. Why? Why was he frustrated at Buzz? Exactly. You are a child's plaything. You're not a space ranger. Can't you see the evidence? You can't fly. You can't. The laser weapon isn't working on me. Can't you see that? You are a toy. But for Buzz Lightyear, in that moment, it was, it was the truth was hard and difficult to accept. They were unwilling to change because it is hard for them to see the truth. The truth that the man they knew was God, was the Messiah that they've been waiting for. But unfortunately for them, they're part of the, the, the wide gate that Matthew 7, 12-13 describes. For the gate is wide and the, many, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. For those people that grew up with Jesus, they couldn't accept that the fact that the narrow path was the path that was being presented to them. It was like, this, this can't be true. I can't accept it, even though the evidence is there. And that's what we can struggle with. Think about that. This truth is hard to accept. Because what our expectations of heroes, we think of the Avengers. We think of, we think of Thor, God of Asgard, and his long blonde hair and buff muscles. We think of Spider-Man. We think of Batman. We think... We think of Wonder Woman. We think of Captain Marvel. We think of people that are strong because that makes sense to us. The strong pray over the weak. We can't accept that the God of the universe, who is vastly stronger than any creation that we can think of, if Jesus was there in Endgame, he would have said a couple words and Thanos would have disappeared. He could have stopped. It doesn't matter. But the point is, is that the God of the universe came down as a man and humbled himself? He served the weak, and he died? And on top of that, he rose from the dead. That is a hard truth to really accept. Because what we think should be true is that the strong should conquer. But what God shows his strength is, is that he was served, is a servant. So we need to stop being stubborn and to reject the reality that we're trying to create and substitute the true reality that Jesus is God. He's the one behind the wonders and the miracles. He's the one that resurrected from the dead. He's the one that's going to be king of this world. And as a result of accepting the truth, we can take comfort, though, that we don't have to be perfect, that we don't have to save ourselves some, of, some people believed, verse 5, it says so he laid his hand on a few sick people and they were healed. Some of them had the faith that he could heal them. 
In Matthew 5, you just take a glance and you want to skim through verses 25 through 34 of Matthew 5, we read a, uh, an account that a woman who had a, a bloody discharge, who was bleeding for 12 years, imagine that pain, for 12 years, saw Jesus and had faith that if she just touched him, he would be, have the power to heal her. And you look at verse 34, and he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. We don't have to be perfect. She didn't try to change herself. She didn't try to make herself feel better before she went to God in faith. Just like you, you might be struggling in battle against pornography. You don't have to stop looking at it in order to, to go to him. Say, I, I made myself a little bit better. Now will you accept me? You don't have to cuss less in order to be saved. You don't have to feel like less angry at your parents. You don't have to fight anxiety more. You don't have to resist depression. You don't have to figure all the answers to your doubts. You don't have to drink less to approach the king. You don't have to you know, seek less sexual attention. You don't have to seek less bad relationships. You don't have to find validation anymore. Because when we're trying to do that, we're trying to do it ourselves. I hope you're finding out it's impossible. And it's a hard truth, but thankfully there's a better truth. That if we accept that Christ alone can clean us, he is the one that can help us stop looking at pornography. He is the one that can help us cuss less. He is the one that we can be less angry at one another and our parents. He's the one that can help us in our fight against anxiety and depression. He's the one that can help us with our doubts. He's the one that can help us stop partying and drinking. He's the one that says, you know, I don't have to seek sexual attention or validation from anyone else but God himself. Only Christ alone is the one that can save you. And that should take, give us comfort. But with that, another temptation arises that Mark chapter, uh, chapter 6, verse 7, kind of comes down to, not to say fruition, but something that Jesus teaches the disciples. In verse 7, he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two, giving them authority to, do, to, to cast out these unclean spirits. Then what Jesus is doing, he said, no, I'm sending you out as, as if I'm going out. It's like if I gave Jameson my credit card saying, no, hey, go out and buy 100 pizzas for me, okay? Jameson is buying the pizzas with my credit card because I gave him authority to do so. It's like he is buying them if I, if I was present. But Jesus is telling the disciples in verses 8 and 9 not to take any, any bread, no, not a bag for money, uh, or any extra clothes for a couple purposes. One... He's trying to show them the, the speed of the urgency of the message. That they, hey, we need to get this out as quickly as possible. So some of you in this room, I know like Jackson or Felicia, some of you guys like to do, you know, like to do, you guys like to run distance running. I don't, I don't understand that. Some of you like to do cross country. They try to wear the lightest shirts and lightest you know, clothes possible so they can run as long as possible, as quickly as possible. Because Jesus is trying to show them, hey, if you weigh yourself down, it's going to be harder. Like if I decided to throw on a 60-pound backpack and a football helmet and football cleats and try to run 60 miles, I'm not going to go very far very quickly. But if I, took, if I just let go of all those things, I can run with urgency. But the second purpose, and I hope that you see it, is for the disciples to fully trust that God will provide these things. Because in verse 10 and 11... He talks about when you enter a house, stay there. Don't leave, stay there. But if, if any place rejects you, I think my microphone's going off right now. But if a place rejects you, just dust off, dust off the, shake off the dust that's on your feet. It's a testimony against them. Just move on. And the point there in verses 10 and 11 
is that the disciples, it's not up to them who accepts or rejects them. It's not up to them. What's up to them is to be obedient. Are they going to lay aside all the distractions that can slow them down? Are they going to trust that God will provide everything that they'll need? As we share our faith to others, if it's in a math class or at campus lunch or on your sports team or in drama or at Starbucks or at another coffee shop, you can share your faith knowing that it's not up to you that the person says yes or the person says no. What is your job for us is to be faithful, to be obedient to what is called for us, called, what is called for us to do. Christ is telling the disciples to be urgent, but also fully rely on his authority. So True North, we need to remember, as God saves us, we need to remember that God alone saves when you evangelize. That's point number three. Remember that God alone saves when you evangelize. I want to give a shout out to a, a bridge leader, Kenya Wilkinson. We were out, I had the pleasure of going out with the bridge to Saddleback College to go out and evangelize. We had a booth, we passed some water, some donuts, some bananas, apples, and we just tried to like, invite people to the bridge, share the gospel if we had the chance. But Kenya was someone that was amazing to watch. For 30, over th- about 30 minutes, I watched her just plead and insist that this, this young lady, this college student, would accept the Lord right then. It was a beautiful conversation. She talked about how God valued her, but how her sin separated her from that God, but how God is willing to forgive her if she believed. It's beautiful to watch. And right when the conversation was ending, there's about 20 um, Spanish speakers walking by because they're touring the campus, and we were passing water bottles to them and apples, and I'm thinking, man, I don't know Spanish. I know hola, como estas, that's it. And I'm like, man, we need Pastor Elias here, our, our, Spanish, our Spanish pastor. We need him here. He needs to be here. All of a sudden, as she literally said goodbye to the student, she said, she started speaking in Spanish to these people. I was like, who is this woman? (laughs) She's amazing. And about 10 of them, she was just passionately pleading with her, using her hands, and I didn't know what she was saying. But then afterwards, we were like, hey, first off, how do you know Spanish? She's like, oh, that's my first language. I'm like, oh, that's really cool. She's like, what were you saying? And I was like, oh, I was just sharing the gospel. It's like, you literally just shared for 30 minutes to one, and you just shared the gospel to 10 others. We're like, that's amazing, Kenya. And she's like, no, no, no. It's all God. It's only God that I was able to do it. I was nervous the whole time. But it's only God. And she took comfort in that. And she remembered that it was only God who alone that saves. So she firstly let go to all the distractions that might hold her back. The disciples... We're given instructions to say, hey, let go of all these distractions, extra money, extra food, extra clothes, and let those go. Trust me that I'll provide, and now go. Hebrews 12, 1 through 2. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which cleans so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. True North. Life is full of distractions. We have plenty. You guys have plenty of distractions. I mean, I'm 10 years removed from high school, and I, I don't know if I could survive high school the way you guys are trying to survive it. I mean, you guys are taking 60 AP classes, doing 40 different sports, 10 billion hours of practice for, you know, for football or theater. You have 8 million hours of video games, 10 million hours for YouTube and social media. You're doing 70 college apps, 14,000 uh, 14, school dances to go to, 5 billion birthday parties to go to. You have personal trainers, you have singing coaches, you have football coaches, and so much stuff going on. 
Obviously, I'm exaggerating. But into my mind, when you tell me what you do, that's what I hear. I'm like, how are you doing it? You're going to go to one college. Why apply to 20? We're always going to be busy in our life. My life is busy. You know, with this work, working here at Compass, we are busy. I'm married now. I understand I'm going to be, I, I, I understand I am busy. I, I see that the people who have kids, their, their lives are very busy, but with people who have God's priority first of giving him glory, they're able to do all these busy things and not be overwhelmed by it. But the temptation is with all of our stuff that we're, we're trying to do, especially what you're trying to do now is you're trying to get a job and go to college and figure out your career, is that are the temptation is are we building up our kingdom or his? That's the battle. That's the temptation that goes through. It's not going to end in high school. It's not going to end in college. It's going to be a threat your whole life. You're going to try to either build up your kingdom or his. But remember this, True North. We have to believe this in Proverbs 21, 31. That the horse is, medi- is made ready for the day of battle. We strap on the saddle. We armor it up. We bring our joust. We go into battle. But the victory belongs to the Lord. Do we believe that? Or do we live a life that's like, I believe that, but I'm going to make sure all my bases are covered first. I believe that, but I'm going to try to do all these extra things so that I make the right decision. But in the point of the sermon, we have to let go of things so that we remember that we can't be held back from evangelizing. But as we evangelize, we can approach the sense of urgency with confidence. Because remember, the disciples, if you go back to the passage, they're, they're in uh, verses 10 and 11, Jesus is saying, hey, it's not up to you for them to say yes or no. It's like, hey, if they say no, just dust off, uh, shake off the dust from your feet, meaning like you're pronouncing judgment on them. Because, hey, as they're rejecting you, in reality, they're rejecting me. So if someone rejects you, they're really rejecting God. And so they're saying, you know, I'm, I'm shaking off the dust, which is a way to say, okay, this is a place that doesn't believe. I'm, I'm moving on. But again, the disciples aren't pronouncing judgment for themselves. They're pronouncing judgment on behalf of God. But again, they realized that it wasn't up to them for, them for people to say yes or no. And so when you're sharing your faith with a teammate or a classmate or a sibling, maybe a parent or a coach, you can do it confidently because, you know, their decision is up to you. We want everyone to be saved. We want everyone to accept in that moment. But thankfully, it's not up to our performance. Because if it was, it would be another burden that we cannot get over. There's an urgent need on your campus, including you homeschoolers. There's still urgent need. We have eight public schools. We have OSHA. We're going to do something with ILA. So all of you, there's an urgent need for all of you to reach your campus for Christ. There's opportunities. We have clubs set up. So come. If you have a free, if you have a free fifth, why leave? What's 30 extra minutes? Oh, I forgot to pack my lunch. Then pack it the night before. I'll have to get my stuff for, for practice. Then pack that the night before. Bring it in your car. Leave it in your locker. It's that's, that's time for us to stop making the excuses. My wife and I know, in order for us to get a, a workout in, to have a good time of devotion, and a time to pray, we have to wake up at 5 in the morning. And for me, I start to realize it's 4.30 in the morning. So we have to make sure we have our lunches packed the night before. We lay our clothes out the night before. We know this is a priority, so I'm willing to make some sacrifices and concessions so that in order for me to, have to start the day off strong for God's glory, I want to sacrifice some stuff in the night before, but I want to make sure it's a priority. 
So let's make these campuses. Campus lunch is coming up in less than a week and a half. You take Wednesday, actually some of these schools on Tuesday, a week from there. We want to see people hear the gospel. But again, our success or failure on the campus is not up to us. If, if, we, if we happen to have 200, or let's say we have 500 people in the, the, the school gymnasium, and you hear, they hear the gospel, that success is not up to you. Or maybe only six people, only if two new people show up, that failure isn't up to you. What was up to us is that we're actually passing out the flyers. We're posting on social media. We're giving out flyers. We're personally inviting people. We're trying to get their phone numbers and drag, not drag them, but convince them to come. Because our success is not up to us, but to him. You see, these disciples, they had success then in, verse, in the, uh, verses 12 and 13. They, w- they went, and then the message was clear. It was repentance. Our message has to be clear. But the reason they had success is because it was up to Jesus and not them. Because later in Mark chapter 9, the, the uh, people bring up a, a boy that is sick to Jesus because, hey, your disciples couldn't heal him. Because it was up to Jesus in that moment to show that, no, no, no. You failed because you didn't trust me. In that moment, they trusted him and were successful. But we have to trust in God alone. And it's hard. It's hard because in moments we have a very low view, a very casual view of him. When I was in high school, I had a casual view. Not just of God, but of actually something not as important, but it's very important. I was a foolish man. I, was, I wasn't sure in high school if In-N-Out was really great. It's because I live 15 minutes one, from one. I just go down, I'm like, okay, this is good. It's a nice sandwich. It's, it's a good burger. The fries are nice. The shakes are good. But, you know, I wasn't convinced. I'm like, I'd rather go somewhere else. The line's long. I, it's busy. Mom, Dad, can we go somewhere else? But I saw In-N-Out as ordinary because I was so familiar with it. It wasn't special to me. Until God decided to remove it from me. I went to college. I went to a state of New Mexico that did not have In-N-Out. To this day, does not have In-N-Out. For some reason, it's California. There's one in Arizona. And all of a sudden, they skipped over New Mexico. And there's one in Texas. And I'm like, come on, New Mexico. Let them in, please. But in that moment, I I finally accepted the hard truth. that In-N-Out is great. It is glorious. It is almost perfect. I believe that In-N-Out is so good that maybe in the new kingdom when Christ is reigning that it would barely change. Jesus is going to tweak it just a little bit. I'm like, you guys are so close. (laughs) But here you go. But when I was in college, I became an ambassador for In-N-Out. I shared the good news of In-N-Out. I shared the good news of In-N-Out to not In-N-Outers. And I fought heresies hard. (laughs) The heresies that Whataburger, or another one, Lottaburger, is better than In-N-Out. And I would say, no, you're wrong. <laughs> but I wouldn't do it with just my words. I didn't trust in my words. I trusted in the double-double animal style, the animal style fries and a Neapolitan shake. I trusted in that power to save them from their wrong opinion. You're welcome. And for those who didn't understand and see that In-N-Out is far superior than anything they have eaten, like Christ told me to do, I, dusted, I shook off the dust of my feet and I moved on. And I was like, fine, you're just wrong. They're unwilling to change. They're hard-hearted. I repented of my pride 
And I repented how, how casually I look at In-N-Out. And I savor every time I have a chance to go there. So True North, let's guard ourselves against our pride of having a casual view of Jesus, acting casually at what Jesus has done by exalting him as our Savior that he alone can save and that he, he and as our Lord, trusting in him to save others and doing our mission and our job. Start today. Start right after the sermon. Start before small groups. Prepare for small groups. Start today by exalting him. Let's pray.